Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. The OG3 is here. We're together again. It's been a while since two weeks in a row happened. Uh, Emily's still here, still alive. Still not dead. It's, it's great. It's great. Bradley <laughs> is also here. I haven't blown away in a blizzard yet, so that's good. And most importantly, we have a guest, a return guest. She was featured all the way back in episodes 17 and 18. Just a while ago. That's over a hundred episodes ago at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Wowzers. It's a little little weird to say things like that, but we have Glenda Herrera here today. <laughs> I've been practicing. She's here to talk about something completely different from last time. We had her on to talk about where she grew up and some equipment and all the fancy technology that Bradley gets his hands on up at Morris. But today we've got a completely different topic I know nothing about. Glenda, why don't you first tell us where you are now and what you're doing, and then we'll get into the topic. Yeah, so thanks, uh, Moz Room team, for having me on again. So since those episodes, I have graduated from the Heinz dairy production crew out there. He doesn't like when we call it the Heinz lab. It's not a lab. It's a team and a crew of folks. Um, so I have graduated from the University of Minnesota. And I am now an assistant extension professor at the University of Maine, where I have statewide responsibilities as the dairy specialist. And I do have a teaching appointment, a small teaching appointment within the School of Food and Agriculture here. So I moved back to the New England area and am now a colleague of you all and a colleague of Brett's too, which is weird to you know, say, but I'm officially a professor. <laughs> We can't really be colleagues of Brad until we're full professors and tenured, just so you're you're aware. So today we are talking about per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, better known as PFAS. I'm going to stop there. I'm not even going to attempt to give an intro to this topic because I know nothing about it. So Glenda, what, what are we actually talking about today? I actually am relatively new to this topic as well because uh, I've only been in my role as assistant professor for about a year and was, you know, introduced to this topic when I came here to Maine. PFAS are a group of chemicals um, that are made up of carbon fluorine bonds and they're really strong and they have uh, the capability to not really break apart because what they were made for uh, was to be res resistant. So one of the things that they have is term thermal stability. They're water, dust, and oil resistant and fire resistant as well. They have been used for well over 80 years in a lot of products that folks uh, use on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, some of those are, uh, you know, water resistant fabrics and carpeting, um, cleaning products, paints, firefighting foams, some cookware, such as Teflon and food packaging and food processing. These are things that are really convenient and useful on a day-to-day -day basis, but we are finding out now they may potentially have um, some negative effects that are a concern to uh, humans. Well, and the little reading that I've done, like you said, they're super stable, which is great for their use, but it also means they stick around forever. So extended use, and we've been using these for a long time, um, we're starting to find them just about everywhere. That includes drinking water, everywhere. 
where where are we most concerned that we're finding them, Glenda? Right. So on this podcast, we talk all things dairy and beef. And so uh, there is some, there's obviously some human concern because we do get exposed to it um, through contaminated food, drinking water, air and dust. Um, and then, you know, for those that are potentially manufacturing these products, they obviously have a direct uh, line of contamination. But specifically for dairy, we're concerned because we can uh, get contaminated with PFAS from drinking and consuming dairy products. The, the reason why um, we are concerned as well is because they bind to albumin. So in our bloodstream, it's regularly flowing. And then within dairy cows, we know that blood makes milk. And so that is one of the ways that the PFAS get into the milk. And uh, we are able to urinate most of the PFAS. So there's long chain and short chain uh, PFAS chemical substances. There's well over 6,000 of these chemicals. But we are able to uh, urinate and excrete most of the short chain. But specifically to dairy cattle and specifically for people, there's uh, two that we are most concerned about. And those would be um, PFOS and PFOA. So PFOA is perfluoroctanoic acid, and PFOS is perfluoroctane sulfonic acid. So there are two that are longer chain, so more than six carbons, which would then um, make them be a more, more of a concern because we cannot regularly excrete them or urinate them as the shorter chain PFAS chemical compounds. So I think important to note is that there, there's so many different kinds of PFAS out there. Um, the two that Glenda mentioned, PFOA and PFOS, are yes. the ones that we are concerned about, and they have uh, recent in recent years in the U.S. been replaced by other PFAS chemicals. Um, but we know so little. What what do we know? There's just so little that we do know. What what do we know about these chemicals? Right. So as you mentioned, there's so many, and when you regularly test for, you know, if you're doing a blood test or a water test or whatever, you're obviously looking for those specific ones that you know are more likely to be present. Um, so some of the research has indicated that these chemicals once accumulated, so, so that's part of the equation too, right? So they accumulate over time because they do have a half-life. Um, but when they do accumulate and you're con consistently either being, uh, you know, ingesting, drinking, et cetera, uh, then that's when you start to see the adverse effects. And, and again, we'll circle back to dairy because that's why we're talking about it today. Um, but so there can be an increase in the risk of cancer, um, elevated cholesterol levels, um, it can impact fertility and immunity. But because they do have a half-life with no additional exposure, in two to four years, you can see a reduction in the amount and uh, in, in the level of contamination within the human body. Um, and then it's important to note, too, that we are phasing out a lot of these chemicals, but they persist. So still exi exist in the soil and in the water, which obviously we are always consuming food that comes from those sources, which is part of the cycle and why we would reintroduce the contamination. What, when I've read about it, what I see is, is that it's just so ingrained in daily life that it's hard to not be exposed. I mean, especially when we're finding it just about everywhere. One of the things I think about is that, you know, they've been using these chemicals for so long. Let's say, let's just take carpet, for example. If they use it in carpet, how often do you really replace your carpet? You know, that carpet could be in your house for the next 15, 20 years. 
and you've got continual exposure. I don't, I don't know. This, this sounds like this is something we're going to be stuck with for quite a while. What, what are the next steps? I mean, we got to find out more. How, how are we going to do that? So I'm optimistic because as a researcher and a scientist, we're always looking for ways to get new data to be able to make informed decisions for the future. So, and I think the dairy cow and the ruminant can be part of that solution. So stick with me and I can explain some of that. So right now there's uh, been some action levels that are, are in place of at federally for water, but within Maine specifically, and we'll, we'll, we'll introduce the main story here um, so that we can segue into it. So an action level to just make sure that everybody knows is a concentration of a chemical in an environmental medium that serves as a threshold to determine if there, if there needs to be further action. In Maine specifically, and why I was introduced to this topic, there, there was, uh, and the sources of where PFAS came from in Maine um, and other areas, so, so there's, there's many sources, but uh, primarily in the agriculture sector, um, it was a lot through the introduction of uh, fertilizers or biosolids for fertilizers. So if we think about, you know, all of the sludge that goes into the wastewater treatment plant, right, you like wash your dishes and that goes somewhere, um, the, the manufacturing plants that exist around the state, you know, all of that drainage ends up somewhere. And one of those places can be the landfill, uh, you know, septage, and all of that can accumulate and lead up into wastewater treatment plants. Um, when you separate the biosolids from the rest, because there is clean water in that um, wastewater treatment plant, and you have these solids that about 30 years ago, a lot of farmers, not only in Maine, but in a lot of other places in the U.S., um, were indicated that those uh, had some beneficial uh, properties to be used as fertilizer on agricultural land. What we didn't know was that um, a lot of these PFAS chemicals would be then in those biosolids and they accumulated from various sources. So um, specifically for Maine, you know, one of the sources could have been um, the paper mill. So when we make uh, paper products and in short paper or fiber, uh, there is always residue and that ends up in the wastewater treatment plant. Um, for other companies and manufacturing facilities that are near, you know, a river or another property, a body of water, because it's persistent and it travels through water, that's how it's getting into that wastewater treatment plant again, and then into the soil. Uh, unfortunately, you know, firefighting foam uh, did have, uh, you know, was used with PFAS. And so there was a case earlier this year where a dairy was affected, um, negatively impacted by PFAS because they were uh, near uh, airport base that had used uh, these firefighting foams, which included PFAS um, for trainings. So there's a lot of leaching going on and the PFAS, they just uh, are persistent and permeate into uh, the environment through uh, water, air, dust, et cetera. And so to wrap that up in Maine, about in 2016, there was a farmer um, who was near a monitoring well for the state. So monitoring well exists, exists throughout the state. Uh, this this water district specifically was uh, was testing and picked up elevated levels of PFOS, uh, the perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, um, and so then it was near a dairy farm, and then from there they took action to, uh, you know, the well was had elevated levels, so then they looked at the dairy farm um, for in terms of their water and their milk. 
Um, and so that was one of the so, sort of initial detections in Maine. From there, there was, uh, you know, some random store shelf sampling. So the, the state of Maine randomly sampled a milk on the shelf at the grocery store. And in 2019, there was, it, it just happened to be that that random jug that they picked up uh, was traced back to an area in Maine um, that did have a PFOS. And then again, it was a dairy farm. So then tracing, you know, that traceability started. And um, so there was, that was one farm. And then there was another farm very nearby. And so they did uh, some additional testing. Um, and that farm um, also had elevated levels, not as much, uh, but substantial for obviously to continue testing. Um, and so there, there's been three farms that were affected. Um, and the last farm we were talking about, they have actually remained in business um, through, uh, you know, mitigation strategies and, and trying to uh, produce uh, clean milk and, and stay below that action level. How widely available is testing? I think we've all come to know that a lack of tests can be a big issue. And if I'm if I'm worried about my livestock grazing certain land or drinking certain water, I mean, I need to test or else I have no idea. But I mean, how widely available is testing? It is widely available. Um, and there's many labs throughout the United States that you can send your samples to. Samples to. Obviously, in Maine, we've been sending a lot of samples. So we work closely with a couple of labs here in the Northeast. I would incentivize folks that potentially have a history of, you know, they, they, they're like, I remember maybe there was a biosolid application, but because it's important to know the source. So not every source leads to contamination. So it's not like all of the biosolids in the world uh, have PFAS in them, but it's important. So it's important to like have that traceability, know your source. But if folks are concerned, then they should contact their state officials um, because, uh, for example, here in Maine, we're going through a testing process. So the state is testing almost all of the areas in Maine where there has been uh, a source of contamination of PFAS. So we have history, we have records, um, and we, we can follow sort of that traceability and follow that source. For, for folks that potentially have a well and, 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 you know, they might be concerned, I would just recommend contacting your state officials because it's going to be different for everybody. There's maps out there. and For example, Maine has a map of where there's history of biosolid application. It's expensive. So again, I, I would just want folks to reach out to state officials because there might be reimbursement programs as well. And it's important to state that there are testing protocols. Um, so it's important that you're using the appropriate tools to collect these samples because you can contaminate your sample. How, how much is a, a test? I think that's maybe it can be sometimes a sticker shock to people and maybe that's not why they do it, but that sh shouldn't be the, that's probably the wrong reason to not test is because of the expense. It's, it's like a few hundred dollars a test, isn't it? Right, right. 230 to 400 is, is what we've been seeing for milk and feed TMR, hay samples. But you're right. It shouldn't be the reason that they don't test. Um, but I just wanted to say that don't go out and test all of your land and, and blood test and, you, you know, make an informed decision. Um, if you believe that you you are near a source of PFAS contamination, um, you know, then take the right measures. So obviously in Maine, we have a lot more resources regarding that because we have had some issues with PFAS contamination on agricultural land. 
and, and you know people live on a property adjacent to that and then that's the well that they're getting water from um so it's important that people make informed decisions as well you know kind of what Brad was saying don't let sticker shock stop you don't let thinking that it's all going to blow over and be fine, stop you. You know, this is something to take seriously. And the little knowledge that I have on PFAS, I actually learned from one of the farm safety and health farm stress colleagues I work with at University of Maine, uh, because in Maine specifically, since they've had these issues for longer, more severely, et cetera, there's been a lot of stress and, and real tax on mental health for farmers with this as well. And so, you know, this is kind of a thing that I think we might have an advantage that maybe it's not super severe here yet, so we can get ahead of it. And part of that, too, is getting ahead of the mental strain that can be attached to this. You know, words like contamination, I know, can be really scary, but it's important that we really be proactive on these things. Um, and proactiveness is is one of the characteristics of resilience, actually. So, I just I had to chime in from from the farm stress and and safety standpoint as well. You know, this this is something we should take seriously and be proactive about um, and and recognize if you have been having troubles and you can't identify the problem, maybe this is a new place to look as well. It can be hard when we deal with something we don't have a lot of knowledge about. We know that. I think we all learned that in March of 2020. But you know, I just, again, I think it's so critical that we're having this conversation and that you've been on with us today, Glenda, to talk about it, um, because it it is going to be a problem. And, you know, in, in Emily's brain, I, of course, think about it as a stressor. And, and the last thing we need is more of that. You know, we're going to find more sites across the U.S. that have elevated levels. And so right now, Maine has action levels and is the only place in the world that has action levels for milk and beef and milk specific to dairy cows not it's not sheep or goat it's um, dairy cow milk so uh, we do have a federal action level for drinking water but for milk and beef it's a main action level how did they determine those action levels if we know so little about these chemicals so how did they determine those levels long story short of it and i'd have to obviously get gather a lot more data but you you back calculate what the average consumption would be of dairy products and then what what would it be for an average you know american diet um and and then that action level is uh you know the threshold that would be not safe for consumption or to begin those adverse effects um that we mentioned in the beginning well, this seems like uh, something that's kind of looming. I love what Emily said, that we can try to get uh, ahead of it, which would be great. You, you've dealt with this more than we have at this point. What What's your advice to someone who thinks they might have an issue? What should they get done first and who should they reach out to? Where Where do they go? If we're talking about a residence, that's different than a farm. So if you own a home and you're concerned that you are near land or a well that is, has potential contamination, or you worked in a place where these products were produced, then obviously your first thing to do is to consult your physician and then um, find the appropriate method to and lab to conduct a blood test. 
that's, I think, one of the natural routes for somebody in that situation. And then additionally, contacting your state officials. Um, so for example, here, uh, we work closely with the Department of Environmental Protection and uh, the Center for Disease Control, as well as the Department of Ag for Conservation and Forestry to, to help us in uh, assessing and guiding and making those decisions. Because again, there's protocols, and that's important that you're not contaminating the sample when you're taking the sample. Um, so there's a lot of information to know before uh, doing that. So reach out to uh, you know DEP and um, your Department of Ag because they will have some further information on how to test or or somebody who can come out and test your site. Uh, if you are a farm, so as I mentioned, there is no a regulation for food outside of Maine. So in Maine, we we do have uh, an action level for uh, milk, dairy, cow milk, and for beef. So we've been doing a lot of uh, observational and, and taking a lot of uh, you know notes on on data and farms that we've been working with. But the research is still to come. Um, but we believe that some of the research we'll conduct can potentially find solutions. So learning more about what to do related to your crops, how can we minimize, you know, PFAS contamination? Because unfortunately it's in the soil and it's being, you know, uptaken by the plants. There's a lot to learn because when we think about drought stress and feeding those crops, the PFAS won't travel as much. And so you have sort of a concentrated um, plant. Um, but, but there will be some recommendations uh, we hope to have as we do our research. And some of the research we're going to be conducting is looking at uh, feeding binders and bile sequestrants, similar to an aflatoxin binder that we feed regularly, um, and how we can use that to trap PFAS in the, the gastrointestinal tract. I think about cull cows immediately when you talk about this. Anything that you accumulate over time, I mean, the older the animal, potentially the more that's there, right? So I think about Cull cows on the dairy side, but also cull cows on the beef side, bulls, animals that live longer and are around a lot longer time. That's where my mind goes right away. Because I assume since they've been around longer, exposed longer, they're going to have higher levels. And that makes me very nervous because that's a huge cash flow uh, for both dairy and especially beef. So that makes me very nervous that this is something that, that could impact that market. You know, it, it hasn't been at the forefront here in maybe the upper Midwest, like it maybe has in the Northeast. There are some here at, at the University of Minnesota that are looking at PFAS, not from a livestock perspective, just, you know, doing some exploratory research, seeing where it is, where might they find it? Is it in water? What, you know, looking at soil, at land, you know, I don't, want to alarm people uh, and say it's like, you know, the end of the world, but people are looking at it here in the Midwest and and we just don't know yet what 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 might happen and and how we might have to deal with it and yeah, it's a it's scary. It it really is. We need more research, more exploratory stuff to see what's happening here at least in the in the Midwest. And and in the Northeast, you know, there you don't have all the answers there either. So it's uh, it's a tough thing. Glenda, do you think we're we're getting ahead of ourselves with some of it uh, in terms of putting regulation down without really knowing what's going on? 
So that might be a piece of it. You know, as I think about it, we need a lot of information to make informed policy, right? So it's important to have a lot of data to then be able to put that policy in effect. So I do think so. One of the things that we're struggling with right now is that we do have, uh, you know, a state policy, but not a federal pol policy. So it's it's government, it's not federal. Uh, and so a lot of our farm, you know, big stressor to a lot of our farmers as well is that they have a market, you know, in, in Maine, but then how do we regulate, you know, milk from other states and, and whatever products we're importing here and selling uh, and sharing our shelf space with. So that's one of the things that our farmers are struggling with too, because, uh, you know, they have to meet that action level in Maine, but, you know, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, whatever other states that may be selling milk in Maine, how do we regulate uh, that? So it's it's a tough position to be in, and um, it's it's some it's a concern that a lot of our farmers um, talk about because uh, at, at the end of the day, this was you know something they agreed to, you know, spreading biosolids on their land. Unfortunately, thirty years later. We didn't expect this to be the consequences for those farmers. Well, I hope we haven't depressed everyone too much. Ooh, like Brad said, we don't want to we don't want to throw off alarm bells and say it's the end of the world here. But we do want people to be aware of this issue and the fact that if you hear it being talked about, this is why the main players in the game that are going to be talking about it that you probably will hear it from are from the Pollution Control Agency and the EPA. You know, traditionally maybe a little bit of a strained relationship between those organizations and our dairy and beef communities. But we need to be aware of this issue. We need to make sure that everyone is committed to a evidence-based or scientific-based approach to the uh, how we approach this problem uh, and decide if it is a problem or not, all of that. That's the goal. I don't really know what else to say about it at this point. I think what we're going to have to do is have Glenda back uh, to give us an update on what's going on and hopefully give us an update on all the great research she's done on this topic. Uh, any final thoughts, Glenda? Yeah, I want to echo your thoughts that, you know, I, I'm always optimistic. And when, when I started working with this, it was very, you know, it, it is something that isn't, you know, really associated with a positive experience. Um, and, and it's like a lot of stress and, a weight to bear because it's, you know, the outcome, unfortunately, with dairy farmers not being able to produce clean milk is a reality for, for Maine. But as I mentioned, um, I'm optimistic because dairy and ruminant, dairy cows and ruminants, again, can be part of that solution, right? So something I didn't talk about was that, you know, there's a lot of biomass in where these PFAS exist, but if, you know, the research as we think it'll work in, in the digestive system of the ruminant, if we can bind it and we can excrete it, you know, pass it through their manure, um, we can potentially then accumulate that manure and run it through another process that creates smaller organic material of these PFAS chemicals. So again, I think dairy cows and ruminants are part of the solution. And it's just because they're great recyclers. You know, we have some pretty cool technology that exists today for us to be able uh, to do some some remediation of PFAS. 
I and I just want to say lastly that we share this information to make an informed decision. So you as a consumer, you as somebody who is concerned about your health and your community can make informed decisions. It's not the end of the world, um, but be sure to do some of your own research and to read up on it on a reliable and reputable source to then be able to make an informed decision for you and your family. Perfect. I will also do some looking and see if I can get some more Minnesota-specific information about PFAS. Uh, and then if there are areas of the state that are a concern uh, in Minnesota, I'll look for that too. Might be able to find where people need to be more concerned than others. Obviously, if you've had biosolids spread on your land, that's a, a big big indicator, but um, I'll, I'll look and see what I can find that's specific to Minnesota. Well, thank you, Glenda. We really appreciate you coming back. Uh, and we'll have you again uh, eventually to tell us uh, an update on all the great research you're doing. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. All right, let's wrap it in. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or skating rebuttals about today's episode, you can email those to themoosroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. You can also call and leave us a voicemail for a chance to be featured on a future episode of The Moose Room. That number is 612-624-3610. You can also find us on Twitter at UMN Moose Room, and we encourage you to visit the University of Minnesota Extension website, extension.umn.edu. That's a wrap. Bye. 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 Mm-hmm.